And a very warm welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5. Today we have two interviews. I will be interviewing three activists from Climate Justice U of T. Aaron Mackey, Amy Mann, and Leah McKinney. They have just completed an 18-day occupation of Old Vic at U of T. And Stefan will be interviewing the illustrious Paris Marx, the one and only host of Tech Won't Save Us, a podcast also on the Harbinger Media Network, just like the Green Majority. And just before we get into these great interviews, I am going to once again mention the fundraising event for CIUT that Green Majority, in partnership with the Green Line and other great organizations, are putting together for the 18th of May at the Great Hall. We're going to have very, very, very good local musical talent we have the Haitian-Canadian rapper Kemdillo Gold. We have the activist DJ Automatic Amore. We have the cosmic rock group Yound. And other performers as well, and speakers, and organizations with tables at the event where you can learn how to get involved with the upcoming municipal elections. And we can just talk generally about how we can build a joyful Toronto. So that's on the 18th of May. And if you go to greenmajority.ca slash tune in, you can get your tickets for half off if you put in the promo code GREENMAJORITY. All proceeds go to the station. Let us now begin. We are joined now by three activists with Climate Justice, Climate Justice U of T. I'm with Amy Mann, Aaron Mackey, and Leah McKinney. They were all just recently occupying, camped out at Old Vic at Victoria College, University of Toronto for 18 days. This is the longest occupation, student occupation in U of T history, correct? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. They entered the occupation with a demand that, that Victoria College divest from all fossil fuels by 2025. The university has responded to their occupation. And I'm wondering if you could just speak first about what happened at the occupation. We were there for over 18 days. We had the first week, um, lots of teach-ins and different professors come in to the space and different student groups. We brought tents and sleeping bags and food. And yeah, we camped out there for over 18 days and we were able to get Vic to finally commit to divestment. They did commit to divesting by 2030, which is the same timeline as the University of Toronto. We'd been kind of in talks with them for over five years now, trying to get them to divest and they were not listening. So we decided to escalate and do an occupation. You were camped out in Old Vic. So this is a large, old brick building. And there's a, there's a big atrium, right? A massive hall that everybody enters before they go into the, the lecture halls. And so are we talking about just like tents set up on the floor? So there was tents spread across the space um, and students would sleep in those. And then we also kind of rearranged some of the furniture in the space so that students could um, 
converse and also study because we're we were kind of in the middle actually of like our final season while all of this was happening which i think shows quite a bit of commitment from the students that were present um we also kind of organized the space so like aaron said uh teachers could come in tas could come in and hold class discussions um we also had room for our own kind of community meals that we had um, almost every night and yeah, people would come in and either cook with us or they would come and donate food. Um, a lot, we saw a lot of support from, from the community, um, specifically from like our TA union, um, as well as from other environmental advocacy groups like Greenpeace. Wonderful. That's one of the amazing things about sit-ins. I noticed there was one a couple of years ago now, there was a big climate march and there, was, there were sit-ins on the streets, people blocking the streets. And when people just sort of sit down and, and, and take over a space, it becomes like a sort of symposium. And so it sounds like that may have been what occurred uh, quite beautifully, where you just have people occupying and then they, they're there for so long and they're in the one space and they're disrupting it, but it becomes a very harmonious sort of community uh, where people learn and talk and feel like empowered and they have some sort of some sort of say. And it turns out you did have a kind of say, right? They They, they agreed to begin divesting and eventually by 2030. Were there any specific or surprising experiences that you had carrying out such a long occupation? Yeah, there was actually like a few things that were very surprising for me. And I think Leia and Aaron have their own things they could speak to as well. I remember, I want to say probably around the seventh or eighth day, there was someone who joined. I mean, at the end of every day, we kind of go and we'd sit in a circle and we'd debrief and we'd go around the circle, especially for new people that joined. Um, because throughout the occupation, we had lots of new people that were constantly coming and joining and staying. Um, and so we'd have people introduce themselves and we'd like talk a bit about our days. And I remember there was one person who came and they said, and they were very like shy and I don't think they knew anyone and they weren't really talking. And then at the, when we were going around the circle, they mentioned that, oh, this is my first time participating in a Vic event. I mean, I wouldn't really necessarily call it a Vic event, but something Vic related. And for me, at least being involved with like some big student politics, that was very heartening because like one of the realities that we that at least like Vic student leaders kind of deal with, not so much myself, but people that are kind of involved in the organizing like actual Vic events, not protests, um, is that like it tends to be the exact same students that participate in almost everything. And so you have a few students that really like participate in events and they're at everything. And then most students or at least like a, a pretty large percentage just don't really um, participate in every any event. And it tends to be kind of divided that way. And so to me, something that was very heartening and kind of surprising about our occupation is that the kind the people that were there weren't like the traditional people that you would see at like a Vic event. A lot of the people were people that had never, that didn't really normally participate in these events and otherwise weren't necessarily part of other student groups or um, different extracurriculars and I think people really felt inspired and we really formed our own community outside of maybe like the ways that Vic defines community for us and I think that was really beautiful for me. I don't necessarily know if I was surprised because there are a lot of people who are like doing a lot of really great work and there's a lot of people involved in climate justice U of T but just the momentum that we were able to build and the pressure and support that we received from the broader um, Victoria College community the U of T community outside groups I think that that was really inspiring and I did not expect that at all I think also just yeah I mean again it was during finals and so in my mind I to be honest, I didn't know how many people would show up every day or stay overnight. And 
there was so many people. We had over 250 students participate in the entire occupation. Obviously, not all of those um, stayed overnight, but most nights there was anywhere from like 10 to 20 uh, folks who were staying there. There's one student who stayed every single night, all 18 days, which in and of itself is amazing. Um, and so I think just the momentum that we were able to build and the support that we received was really inspiring um, and really kept us kept us going. Firstly, I think the community that people were craving after COVID, I mean, I think that even like climate justice UFT didn't even exist really previous to this year because it, it used to be LEAP and that kind of disintegrated um, during COVID. And I think a lot of climate justice communities dispersed and um, that was really disheartening for me personally um, to see. And then I think also maybe on a broader point, I think that a lot of people have become apathetic and also just depressed in this moment, especially especially students. Um, and so I think that it makes sense that we were so excited um, and passionate about this community and keeping it going for so long because we've been craving it for a really, really long time. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not fully what you were requesting them that they do, but if you could just briefly mention what it is that they've, Victoria College has, has agreed to do in response to your occupation. Uh, so Vic, uh, they committed to divesting by 2030. Um, and the wording they used was a little bit ambiguous because unlike U of T, for example, who gave us a whole report, they gave us like a press release with one paragraph saying what they're going to do. But from the looks of it, they're divesting from direct producers. Um, and so that would be like your ExxonMobil's shell, but not necessarily like Enbridge and like pipelines is my understanding of it. Um, and so we were obviously hoping for um, not just like the production, but the transportation, like a pipeline. And we were also hoping for a much faster timeline, uh, like 2025. Uh, but they still it's still like definitely a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, I think just adding on to that, the actual language that they used in the press release is, as Amy said, extremely ambiguous. And we had to get multiple other people in the climate space to read it over to fully understand it, which was not necessarily ideal. I mean, all of us have been involved in divestment and understand these language, like the language and have read a lot of press releases about divestment. And so for us to not even really fully understand it was kind of baffling. And just the language that they used was really, it was just a really poorly, poorly written statement overall, uh, which I think is kind of indicative of the fact that they weren't planning on making this announcement. I think that Vic, you know, had been in discussions about divestment um, or at least they said they were for the past two year, two or so years. And during that time, you know, they had all of their resources at their disposal to really think about what they wanted to do and come up with a concrete timeline and a game plan and really flesh out some of these ideas. And it was only after the five years of student pressure, but then this 18 day occupation on the 18th day, they, they made this statement. So that kind of leads me to believe that it was very much indirect response to our protest and student activism and the organizing and the work that we put in, and that this wasn't something that they would have done otherwise. I think it also speaks to the fact that they tend to make these, they make these commitments and ones with very, very far off timelines. And that's a good way to respond directly to protests. So we saw what, like back when like Greta Thunberg first did her thing and we had the big one in Toronto, uh, the city of Toronto declared like a climate emergency. And so doing kind of actions like that or far off deadlines kind of gives you some wiggle room to make a response while not necessarily having to take tangible actions. And so I think it's definitely like a first step 
for us as well and making sure that this actually happens, especially since, uh, I mean, maybe I'm just obsessing over the wording, but they technically said that it's a goal. Their goal is to do it by 2030, which I find a bit concerning wording wise. So I think we definitely have a lot of work to do. And this is like a really, really great place to start from. Do you have any immediate plans for carrying forward this particular campaign? I think that we want to take this on in different contexts, specifically targeting like Trinity College as well as St. Michael's College, both are which are the other federated colleges that have yet to divest. Um, so I think that our next move is to take direct action to them. And obviously we want to keep pushing um, the administration on their decision to pick 2030 as their goal. I mean, personally, I had conversations with uh, President Ronald McEwen uh, of Victoria College. And when I expressed our desire to have it be on a shorter timeline, potentially a two-year timeline, she immediately, you know, uh, just rejected that proposition uh, and did not want to have any sort of conversation about shortening a timeline, which was really frustrating and patronizing and almost paternalistic. Um, those seem to care. Those words seem to characterize a lot of the conversations we had with her. So I think we want to keep pushing Vic administration um, to shorten their timeline and also just be more transparent in this action. We didn't have any access to this decision making that happened at the Board of Regents, which is the highest administrative body at Vic. Um, and I also think that U of T has kind of set a precedent for non-transparency, because um, since their decision to divest, they were supposed to be putting out annual reports on how this divestment process was happening, um, and they haven't really lived up to that goal of theirs, um, and they haven't been releasing reports consistently. So I think that we, once having this commitment, we need to make sure that they stick to it. As a last question, if any of you had any anything further to add on like what other activists can can take away from your from your experience here if you, if you had anything directly relatable to uh, to other people doing similar things one thing that i definitely learned a lot about was just in our interactions with administration i think we can all attest to like the kind of empty threats we almost heard so just to like give an example um we were told on one of the first few days that we actually were violating the fire safety code because our tents were too high and you weren't allowed to have like an object of a certain height, I guess, at Old Vic, um, which keep in mind, it's like a huge ceiling. It's a huge area. And to make matters worse, like on Monday, so like a few days prior, they'd had a research fair with these giant billboard like type posters that had been just as high as our tents. So it didn't really seem like a super plausible argument, especially given that if this was a rule, you would think it would be written down somewhere um which is kind of what we told them um and then after that uh they kind of they kept coming back and leah who was our main security liaison did like a fabulous job of kind of negotiating this um but yeah they kept coming back and they'd kind of bring new issues so like one day it would be like oh accessibility uh like how much area do you live to walk through but of course we'd read the rules and we made sure we left enough space and stuff like that um and so i think that at least for me it was very nerve-wracking because there was a part of me that wondered especially when they like, threatened to call the fire the chief chief fire marshal and then they came and then they did an investigation that I was very worried that like okay maybe like maybe it's not an empty threat maybe maybe there's something here um and then we ended up just making the decision to kind of push through and after they told us that we had to leave for violating the fire safety code we said that we would not leave until we received like a written letter telling us to leave from the Toronto um, city fire um, marshal and then that never came 
Um, and so I, th I think what's something that we did learn is that, uh, like, in some ways, first of all, I think th the fact that they started really pressing on this showed that they were nervous. Because in the first few days, when I think they thought we were going to leave, like, within a few days, they were just kind of letting us be there. Um, and so I think one thing I learned is that once you start kind of getting that pushback, I mean, that means that what you're doing is working. And then also that like when you're uncomfortable and in those situations where I did genuinely feel very nervous about if I was making the right decision and if we were doing the right thing, like that's kind of when we need to like sit with it and know that like, okay, we're, we're hitting something that is working and we need to like kind of keep, keep pushing. One of like my biggest takeaways, I think from this is just being cognizant of your own individual capacity. Um, again, it was an 18 day occupation and it does take a lot of work. And I know that like on a personal level, and I'm sure this is very similar for other Amy and Leah, but also other organizers involved in the occupation that, you know, we put a lot of time and a lot of energy and effort into it. And it definitely takes its toll and can be very stressful. So I think being really mindful of that and making sure that even if you don't want to, taking time to, you know, a few hours away or, you know, breaks where you can. I think that the first week I didn't and I was there, you know, full on um, almost every single day. And that was a lot. And so um, then by the second week, you know, if we're still going, you have to conserve your energy um, and trust that there's going to be other people there who are equally capable um, and, you know, that they're going to make the right decisions, the right calls. Um, because obviously, you know, it was finals, we do have classes, like we have other responsibilities. So it wasn't logistically possible for each one of the core organizers to be present every single moment. Um, so I think just making sure that there's trust, um, and that you have a lot of faith in um, your organizers. And I think that that's something that um, is definitely really important to consider. Yeah, just on a final note, and this is kind of related to what Amy was speaking to in terms of standing your ground when it comes to authority figures. I think that there was a lot of conversations going around with the Vic administration um, about their fiduciary duty to stay invested or their the economic repercussions of divestment and kind of a lot of quite patronizing uh, talk about what divestment would mean and how we didn't really understand it. And I think that the reality is, is that as organizers, we have science on our side, we have like reality on our side. And I think that, I mean, the most recent IPCC report said that, you know, greenhouse gas emissions have to peak by 2025 if we are going to stay at 1.5 degrees of warming and avoid, you know, drastic, immense damage, social and ecological damage. And so I think that just remembering that as organizers, you're the authority in this situation. You really are. Like you have the facts, the reality, the, the immense responsibility of, of protecting this planet, you have that on your side. Um, and so just, just to remember that in, in, in these conversations which pe with people that um, will claim to have you know, more understanding than you. Wonderful, well, thank you very much. I gotta say congratulations on your historic 18-day occupation of Old Vic. That is a building that needs to be occupied, needs to be needs to be taken over by every student there because it's it belongs to the students. Great work, and thanks a lot for joining us again. A Amy Mann, Aaron Mackey, Leah McKinney, organizers, Climate Justice U of T. I wish you all great luck in moving forward with these campaigns, but also taking care of yourselves as uh, as you continue to fight this wonderful fight.
Thank you so much for having us. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. We are joined here by the host of Tech One Save Us, Paris Marks. Thanks so much for being here. Why did you start the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to be on the radio. Yeah, I, I started the podcast because, you know, when you look at a lot of the reporting on technology in the tech industry, there's a lot of kind of boosterism there. There's often not a lot of kind of critical thought and critical engagement with the question of technology, what it's doing in our lives. And I thought there was an opportunity to start having some conversations with experts on you know, a whole range of different kind of tech topics to explore those things and to give people a bit of a different perspective than they might otherwise get on technology. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's been running for three years now as of this month and the response has been great. And I've got to, you know, have conversations with a bunch of people who I think do awesome and fascinating work. So all great things. (laughs) One of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the show is because in the environmental world, there's still, there certainly is a lot of tech boosterism for sure. But one name I think stands above the rest in terms of people will not stop giving this guy the benefit of the doubt because at one point he said electric vehicles were cool and everyone decided that that meant he was going to be saving the world. And of course we speak of Elon Musk. And You are currently in the process of a membership drive to fund a deep dive on our good buddy, Elon. And I think his his trajectory is a bit of a poster child also for the tech sector as well, in my mind. You know, he starts off with this, like, I'm going to save everything. It's going to be great. And then slowly has over time shifted into like comic book villain. I'm going to own everything. I'm going to colonize Mars and control what you can, if you can say mean things to me on the internet, like it's quite the direction. And, and you see it time and time again in a lot of the other tech uh, bubble kind of people, but he is a particular case. And so what is it about Musk specifically that interested you uh, for this project? It's hard to avoid Elon Musk when you're looking at the tech industry or when you're looking at its kind of engagement with the environment, right? And with climate change. And so I have been kind of following Musk for a long time because, as you say, I do think he is an avatar for the tech industry more widely, right? Obviously, he kind of has this kind of personal explosion. The myth around him kind of takes off in the first decades, the first decade of the 2000s in particular, when, you know, his he's making investments in SpaceX, he's getting involved in Tesla and kind of taking over that um, company. And then it only begins to further soar in the 2010s as we have this era of low interest rates. So his companies can just kind of take off. He has easy access to capital, all that kind of stuff. Right. But I think that I think that Elon Musk shows the real problem in putting so much kind of hope and faith in like an individual. Right. The way that the tech industry really holds up these founders, these particular people as, you know, the ones who are kind of solving all these problems or being personally responsible for like tech innovations and things like that. And not only do I not think that 
Elon Musk is actually very responsible for many of the kind of technologies that he is associated with. You know, I think he's more of like a marketing figure. He's kind of like the brand, the face of these companies. And then there's a whole load of like thousands of people who actually do the work that he takes credit for. But I think that beyond that, you can see like, especially when you look at the electric car stuff, if we're thinking about climate change in particular, how because he's associated with particular companies and technologies, he's able to um, avoid a lot of kind of scrutiny and accountability throughout his career because people really want to believe that he's building the future or he's solving climate change or what have you. When really, I would say that he's very much not doing those things and actively working to ensure that it's actually harder for us to address these problems because he's putting like shiny tech solutions in the window that don't actually address the problem to the degree that it looks like they're going to if they actually take off. What is the deal with PayPal specifically? Because the PayPal co-founders all seemingly have spun off and become these just magnets for, I would say evil in some of their cases, certainly. But like, was there something specific? Do you know if there's something specific about PayPal that led? Is it just because it made so much money that they were then able to do things like but Peter Th Peter Thiel is there, you know, Musk? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it's anything like really specific. But yeah, you're right in observing that they've be become very influential after their time at PayPal, right? So you have people like Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, David Sachs is there and and a bunch of, you know, other people who go on to be very influential in Silicon Valley started a lot of influential companies and you know, collectively known as the PayPal mafia that kind of come out of this, you know, and, and like surprisingly maybe, or like weirdly, a lot of white South Africans or people who have, have at least, you know, had some relationship to South Africa, which, you know, I don't know, we can just leave that, you know, just leave that there for, for a minute. But I would say I would say this about that, right? Because I think that there's plenty of things to say about it. But what you have with PayPal is, you know, a lot of these kind of they're relatively younger at the time that they get involved with it. They're very kind of headstrong and believe a lot in themselves and believe that kind of they can move into any industry that they want and kind of transform it and stuff because this is the power of technology. But I would say you also have a lot of people who often have quite right-wing politics who are being involved with that. So Peter Thiel, obviously, we know today has quite right-wing politics is, you know, I think it's fair to call him a fascist, you know, is funding Donald Trump and a lot of other really far-right political figures in the United States um, and, you know, funds kind of media ventures and things like that too. But when he was at Stanford University, you know, where he kind of, you know, went to university, he founded the Stanford Review or kind of was involved with the founding of the Stanford Review, which was a kind of right wing newspaper at Stanford to kind of push back on the liberal leaning nature of Stanford, or at least how people kind of assumed it was at the time he was there. And then so the Stanford Review kind of becomes an institution at the university. A lot of young conservatives pass through it. And then over his career, Peter Thiel has kind of been pulling people from the Stanford Review to staff up his companies and things like that. So a bunch of these people were at PayPal as well. And then they get a lot of money and they go on to like found various companies and, you know, their stars kind of rise, their wealth kind of rises and they become, you know, more influential as a result. And so, yeah, for whatever reason, a lot of these folks who went into PayPal then go on to become very influential in the Valley because they do get a lot of money from 
being at PayPal. And so that gives them a lot of options and a lot of kind of opportunities and leeway to just kind of go in whatever directions that they want. And now, of course, we're left with the legacy of that and off, often dealing with kind of not only their their influence on the tech industry, but increasingly their influence on the wider society politically and and beyond that as well. It is a remarkable thing, I think, to track just how impactful the sort of quote-unquote tech industry has managed to be in limiting our understanding of what solutions can look like. It seems like the only thing we can do is try to incentivize the private industry to do stuff. And, and that comes from a very sort of tech-centric innovation mindset. To get back to Elon for a second, first, can you explain to people a little about this emerald mine that Elon claims is not real and yet seemingly seems pretty true from my understanding? And, and two, for the people out there who still want to give Elon a, a pass, you know, like for create the creation of Tesla, and for the fact that he like open sourced some of his earlier work in terms of, you know, some electric car pieces. What would you say to those people just about why Elon is not going to save us? Because like there still is a, a sticky part of people who remain convinced that, you know, we're going to Tesla our way out of this. Yeah, two very good questions. One is certainly much more important than the other, but the other is, is you know, fascinating and interesting for its own reasons. So I'll start with the Emerald Mine, of course. So the story is that Elon Musk's father owned half of a share in an Emerald Mine in Zambia um, back when Elon Musk was a kid, basically, and obviously made some profits off of that. And that is kind of part of the story of Elon Musk's history that he really doesn't like people telling. And I would say in particular, in the past six months or so, the Musk family and by which I mean not his father, who they're kind of estranged from, but him and his mother in particular have been speaking out quite a bit about the story of this emerald mine and saying that it's fake, it's not real, that they want people to know like this is not something that should be associated with them, that this mine never existed and what have you. They really want to kind of disassociate themselves from the connection to this mine. And, you know, as recently as earlier this week as we're talking, Elon Musk did an interview with the BBC uh, where, again, he was asked about this mine in kind of an offhanded way in this interview. And he said, it doesn't exist. It's fake. He asked the interviewer to show him a property deed or a photo. He was like, this, this has never existed. But the fascinating thing there is that Elon Musk sang a very different tune on this Emerald Mine in 2014. His, his father has talked about this mine, the fact that it existed. But so back in an interview in 2014, I just pulled this up. He was describing a trip that he took with his father to Zambia. And he told this interviewer, and I quote, this is going to sound slightly crazy, but my father also had a share in an emerald mine in Zambia. I was 15 and really wanted to go with him, but didn't realize how dangerous it was. I couldn't find my passport, so I ended up grabbing my brothers, which turned out to be six months overdue. So we had this plane load of contraband and an overdue passport from another person. There were AK-47s all over the place. And I'm thinking, man, this could really go bad. So I think, you know, if you had told a story like that in 2014, maybe there's a reason why you want to kind of disassociate yourself from the whole story of this emerald mine at this point in time in your life. Please join Paris's Patreon so that we can get this deep dive so I can learn more about this trip. <laughs> This is not quoting his father or somewhere like that. This is 
quoting Elon Musk himself. This is something he said. He confirmed the Emerald Mine himself, and now he really wants you to think that it doesn't exist. So, you know, consider those things as you think about this Emerald Mine in Zambia. Now, to get to your, I guess, more important question that's probably, you know, more impactful on the things that are going on right now. So about Elon Musk's early work and Tesla, I would say this. I think that Elon Musk gets a bit too much credit for the electric vehicle boom or, you know, the interest in electric vehicles that has happened in the past 10 years or so. There were other companies working on electric vehicles and releasing electric vehicles at the time that he was working on Tesla. Elon Musk also was not the founder of Tesla, of course. He came in later and took it over and kicked out its founders, the people who actually came up with how this vehicle was going to work and, and what have you. And so for me, how I think about this in particular is that there was clearly already a move toward electric vehicles that was happening. There was a greater recognition that the climate crisis was something that we we're going to have to address and that our vehicles was going to be part of that. And it was very clear that governments were moving in that direction. And so for me, and this is how I think about a lot of the things with the tech industry, you know, if we think back to the fortunes of a lot of these early tech billionaires, the people at PayPal and things like that, I think that Elon Musk and Tesla is a case of just kind of being the right person in the right place at the right time. I think that if it was not Elon Musk who was there, I think someone else would have taken the place of the Elon Musk and became the person who was pushing the electric car and all this sort of stuff. I don't think that Elon Musk was kind of unique in noticing that this was something that was going to happen and that we were moving in this direction and that governments were providing subsidies and starting to incentivize that push in that direction, right? Like in 2008, Elon Musk or 2008 or 2009, Elon Musk got a ton of money from the US government that basically saved Tesla. And a lot of people forget about that kind of part of the story. And so the government was very involved in incentivizing this kind of a shift. And again, so I think Tesla kind of took advantage of something that was happening there. And so I think then if we also think about his larger kind of impact, if we're thinking about sustainable transportation and actually addressing the impact of climate change caused by transport emissions, I would say that, yes, he has contributed to this interest in electric vehicles, but I would say that he has also had a negative impact on those things. He's very clearly interested in getting people to drive their own electric cars and to switch out their internal combustion vehicle for an electric car, but he really does not want you out of a car altogether, which would be much more sustainable and much more environmentally friendly than just switching everyone over to their own electric cars. He released the proposal for the Hyperloop in 2013, and we know from his own statements and from reporting that has happened afterward that the whole goal of releasing the Hyperloop plan was not that he ever had any intention of building it, but was to reduce the support for high-speed rail in California to make it so it would be more difficult to move that project forward and other high-speed rail projects around the United States. And then on top of that, he also put out the idea for the boring company in the couple of years after the Hyperloop. And this is this idea that you're just going to bore a ton of tunnels under major cities and that would allow a bunch of cars to go in tunnels and that was going to fix traffic. It's the most ridiculous idea in the world. And the idea that he had before the tunnels was that you would just build double-decker highways all over the place and that was going to solve traffic. So you can see how his thinking is working there. And his, his specific proposal is not that we're going to improve public transportation so that we encourage people to get out of cars and get around in that way. 
It's trying to find the most ridiculous kind of proposal to still make mass car ownership work in any kind of conceivable way without having to get stuck in traffic for like hours. Um, and it just doesn't work. And so I would say when we're thinking about Elon Musk's kind of contribution in the space of transportation, you can't just look at the electric car and ignore everything else that was going on at the same time and the other proposals that he's making. I think that ultimately when you kind of add it all up, his actual impact is a net negative one because of how he has tried to sap interest and support from transit and from these other solutions that aren't putting people into cars. And I would also finally say, you know, the the kind of picture that he painted of the electric car is not a very sustainable one, right? It's an electric sports car with a massive battery or a big SUV, or now he's pushing this notion of the Cybertruck, which is this even bigger vehicle that's much more dangerous. When the kind of picture of the more environmentally friendly vehicle before that was the Prius. Okay, maybe it's not as sexy, maybe it's not as popular, but it's a more sustainable picture of what a vehicle should look like if we are still going to have people relying on personal vehicles and whatnot, right? So yeah, that is kind of what I would say about his impact there. If there's ever a argument to be made against the tech billionaire genius or everyone or people who sort of fall into this trap, I, actually I have two sort of different thoughts. The first is just anyone who read the idea of the boring company and thought it was a good idea. I just cannot <laughs> understand how anyone thought single cars driving underground, like let's take the most expensive thing you can do, which is dig tunnels underground. Let's take single lane vehicles and send them through. And then they've like done these crazy things. Like they've built like mini versions of it at like, to, at, like I think it was at like a conference at some point where like you just sat yeah, in a Las Tesla Vegas. and it, yeah, and just drove you 10 steps very slowly. Like, it's worse than a monorail. Like, I just can't come to I, I call it a Disneyland ride for Tesla enthusiasts. Because, like, you, if you have ever seen the videos of it, like, you go down into this little station and there's a bunch of, like, rainbow lights going on. And, like, it's like, you know, you're, you're just going on a little Disneyland ride. You're, you're sitting in your little Tesla. You're going, like, a, less than a mile, I believe it is, to the other part of the station. And like you're just getting your rainbow lights like while you're doing it. Yeah. It's not autonomously driven. It's not going very fast. Like, you know, it's it's not anything special. Yeah, like every part of it is bad. Like there's not even a single part of it that makes any sense. And if one of them breaks down in the middle of the of the little loop, what do you do then? You have to like get a, a different like you have to somehow get a tow truck to get into the middle of the thing and pull you out. Like it is just baffling. But the thing I think is actually a, you know, a little bit more. You know what? If I can say one yeah. thing on the boring company stuff, just to maybe close off that thought that you were having there, Elon Musk and the boring company have also gone around the United States and sold this as a solution to try to get around public transit projects and to reduce support for them like very directly. Right. And so they went to Fort Lauderdale in Florida, which, you know, if listeners have noticed is getting a ton of flooding right now as we speak you know, is is very much underwater, went to Fort Lauderdale. They were looking for a tunnel to go to. They were looking for a tunnel for the Brightline train, which is this new kind of train system that's being built out in Florida. And so they went to the Boring Company because they were like, we'll just get a train tunnel for cheap from them. And so the Boring Company people come in. And by the time that they like sign a, an agreement together, the train tunnel is nowhere to be seen. And instead, they sold the city 
this note, this notion, this idea of a train tunnel from like the core of the city to the beach that would only work for Tesla vehicles. And it's like, so all of a sudden this train tunnel is gone and we have a car tunnel instead that is completely useless for the vast majority of people. And of course, as soon as it was proposed, people were like, this is never going to work. Like anyone who was any, had any degree of expertise was like, this is ridiculous. And now we see Fort Lauderdale is like, you know, underwater again because climate change is hitting Florida. And it's very clear that this whole idea of a tunnel to the beach was just completely ridiculous. Oh my God. But hey, yeah. an insured a trade tunnel would not get built for well, even longer. And that's right? the thing, right? And like that, and that is the true destruction here. Like you're not exactly you're totally right about how devastating, you know, high speed rail in California would be transformative. And and pretty clearly he stopped it. Like this it's it, from my reading of the of some of the documents about that, that was a success for Musk. Like seeding this idea enough basically made people delay for long enough that like they sort of ran out of steam and and now it still isn't built. Like it was supposed to be like coming online relatively soon and and now nothing still has occurred because of this sort of delaying tactic. In some ways, it's kind of the same kind of delay tactic that you see with, you know, with oil industry trying to sort of muddy the waters with other things to get off fossil fuels, right? This, it's a bit of the same thing except for public transit. Um, but I want to I want to get back to a point that you said earlier because I think it's really, really important. It's also about tech billionaires, which is that the idea that there are these like single eight brilliant people who end up controlling, end up have somehow had a better idea, doesn't jive with when you understand, when even you personally remember the experience. Like I'm old enough to remember Facebook coming online. And the thing about Facebook wasn't that there was nothing else like Facebook. There were hundreds of other things like Facebook. There was High Five. There was Friendster. There was, you know, MySpace. There was a million of these things. And Facebook happened to win. And because of the way social networks work, if you have enough people, then they will join up. And, I, and what we see with Silicon Valley, I think a little bit, or very much so, actually, I'd argue, is that you actually just have a billion clones of the same company. And one of those companies happens to win. Either they have more money or they come online at the exact right time or something else. And like anyone who's existed in the sort of innovation sphere, which I'm adjacent to because of, because of my job, you end up seeing a lot of people coming through accelerator programs with like the same idea. You know, I'm the Uber, but for this, or I am the, you know, I am the Amazon, but for that. And, and what it comes clear to me is that like, these people who win are not necessarily doing anything totally new. Like, I'm sure there may be a few ideas that someone came up with that like were actually interesting and changed the game. Other people copied them, sure. But more often than not, that's not what's happening. More often than not, it's just if you throw a billion people trying to make a bunch of money at a thing, someone will do it and someone will get money from it. And then they will then go off with their own money. And our system very much implies that if you have a lot of money, it's a lot easier to make more money. And so then you just sort of fall into money after money after money because it's very hard to fail once you're a billionaire. And that isn't really understood by anyone. I don't think, not by anyone, but obviously like, you know, there are many people who are sort of more skeptical of this, but like that is not something I think that we really talk about a lot. That like, there's just a million people trying to do this and some will succeed. Absolutely. Like if you, Look at a lot of the people who are wealthy and successful in Silicon Valley today. Like 
many of them come from the kind of dot-com boom era, right? Their companies were taking off in that moment. There was just a ton of money around. Like one thing that maybe people don't realize about Silicon Valley is that like all you need is like, especially at moments when there's a big boom, like if we're thinking about the kind of second half of the 90s when there's a big boom, the internet has just been privatized, there's money everywhere, or there's part of like the first decade of the 2000s that are like that, or the early 2010s when interest rates are cut to rock bottom after the recession and governments are trying to like get the economy going and the tech industry is seen as the place or, the, or you know, the sector that is going to drive a lot of growth and investment and job creation. There's just money everywhere. It's very easy to just like dream up some stupid idea and say, this is my idea. This is my startup. Put together a little pitch deck, go to a venture capitalist and they'll throw money at you to see if it's going to go somewhere, right? It's really not like hard to get started in this. And if you look at the people whose companies have really taken off, like especially those people in the 90s who were really getting into this, the Elon Musks, the Peter Thiels and folks like that, the Google guys, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, I believe a little bit later, Jeff Bezos comes from that era as well. Like these are just people who happen to be in the right place at the right time where there was a ton of money as this particular sector that has just grown massively was really taking off. And so, of course, they've become fabulously wealthy. And there were a bunch of other people who just failed and did not become fabulously wealthy because they just didn't have the right luck, right? It's not because they're particular geniuses. It's not because, like, they're so much smarter than everyone else. It's because they're white guys who often come from, like, you know, pretty decent families, if not rich families. Bill Gates and is from a rich family. Jeff Bezos, he was loaned half a million dollars from his parents to get his company Amazon started up. He also worked at a hedge fund before that. So he already had some cash. Like, you know, these are not people who were hard up. They could go to Silicon Valley. They could go to the tech industry. They could take a risk. They could fail and and start another company. Like that's another thing with these startup people is like they can kind of get by without money for a while and lose it on these companies. And so, yeah, they they kind of have a structure that allows them to get going in this way. And then, of course, we have, I would say, a media ecosystem then that looks at these people and treats them as their geniuses and then kind of builds them up. And we get this kind of cult of personality around them, as we see with Elon Musk in particular. And then it's very unhealthy for us as a society and also for our ability to kind of look critically and realistically, not just at those people, but also like what they're delivering and what they're actually doing like just to kind of close off this point if you look at elon musk and like i think a lot of people have woken up to this over the past year as he's taken over or the past six months as he's taken over twitter and they've seen how kind of like fabulously he screwed up that company and have so many of his decisions and moves have just been terrible but anyone who's really been paying attention to elon musk for a while and been interested in kind of what actually goes on at his companies knows that the people at his companies understand that the more they can keep him distracted and not looking at what they're actually doing, the better it is for them. So one of the reasons that SpaceX does really well is because Elon Musk doesn't have much kind of day-to-day -day involvement with SpaceX. He's usually been more involved at Tesla. And that has meant that Tesla has run into a bunch of issues. If you look at Tesla's vehicles, 
one of the reasons that they have such high rates of kind of issues with quality control, like the quality is really terrible on those vehicles. Part of the reason that it's been difficult for them to bring down the prices and, and whatnot is because Elon Musk was constantly tinkering, tinkering with the designs of the vehicles and making them much harder to produce so that it was, you know, tough when it came to mass production and they couldn't get the quality or the kind of cost savings that you would expect when you take a vehicle to mass production as, you know, any other kind of automaker would. So there's a bunch of reasons that he's kind of fucked these things up. Oh, sorry, I'm on radio. There's a bunch of reasons that he's really kind of messed these things up. And so when you look at this, you can see that he's held up as this genius, but actually he is kind of the marketing guy. He is the money guy. He's the one who kind of sells it to the public. But, you know, there's a bunch of people who are actually responsible to the day-to-day -day running of these companies who actually do the work that he takes credit for. And this is the case across much of Silicon Valley, but it's just particularly notable and noticeable with Elon Musk. For sure. I remember hearing that the re reading about the the strategies employed to ensure that he didn't bother everyone else working there. And it was like, that was like what, when he just took over Twitter, that was a conversation. They were like, Twitter doesn't know this. They're just taking all of his ideas. That's the wrong yeah. thing. <laughs> they were like, what are you doing? Exactly. Um, yeah. So, okay. So I have I've one last- The other companies um, had defined strategies to like, you know, dangle keys and stuff in front of them to keep them looking somewhere. Yeah, they had whole departments <laughs> made up for that. Yeah. I mean, the, the, part, the, one, the one thing that I remember reading from that article when it came out was that they had realized that anything that looked like tech babble was impressive to him. So like, I think the security people intentionally had the matrix light, lights going down their computer screens yeah. at all times. <laughs> Because he thought that was cool. And it was like, this <laughs> is who we're dealing with? This guy? He's <laughs> a total idiot. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, he really is. And I think one of the good things about the past six months is that many more people realize that now. But like more people need to. And more people need to realize that like it's not just Elon Musk who's kind of a dumbass. Like there's many more of these people who just got super rich like because they locked out and are now treated like geniuses, but really aren't at all. And then, of course, there are some that are quite intelligent. Like I would say Peter Thiel is quite intelligent, but like in a very evil way, you know? Yeah, it's a shame that like, yeah, that the ones that you're like, oh, yeah, you're not, you're kind of smart are then evil. It's like not a great, not yeah. a combo. <laughs> but so, so one last question, and it's a bit of an Elon not Musk deeper dive question. And, and then we will, and then we'll sort of wrap this up. But you wrote an article recently about his master plan three, which already, come on, Elon, you're calling all your plans the master plan. And then if you need to get to a three for your master plans, I'm a little confused. I kind of feel like master, you get one master plan. You don't get three masters. You know, it's like master plan, revised, fixed, edited, dot, doc. You know, like at some point you're like, you gotta give up that title. But anyways. Um, if it was me, I'd be making five-year plans, but exactly, not yeah, into that. no, he's got <laughs> he's got a master plan that for some reason he'll have master plan two, and it's like, uh, do they overlap? Who knows? But you talk a little bit about how in the article there there's so it's got like a central point that I think environmentalists would immediately latch onto, which is the idea of electrifying everything, which is something that most people agree is required for part of tackling greenhouse gases, but. It then, of course, in, in, in true Musk fashion, kind of falls apart from there. And so can you sort of talk about this plan and why we shouldn't get too excited? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think this just comes back to like the bigger picture of Tesla that we've been talking about for a while and of Elon Musk in particular, right? And so the master plan three is Elon Musk's kind of latest update for what the future of the Tesla business is going to be. But not just the Tesla business, also kind of he is going to how he is going to save the world basically is kind of in this plan or, or you know, kind of the subtext of it, I guess. And so the idea here, as you say, is that what we really need to do is to accelerate the electrification of society. So yes, electrify our cars, but also electrify the energy grid by building out more renewables, including by putting solar panels on more homes and having more kind of battery storage in homes, but also battery storage at more of like a utility level for larger renewable installations and, and things like that, right? And so like, you know, you're a person who cares about the environment and you hear this and you're like, yeah, like we do need to do that. Like that's an important piece of how this is going to work. But then when you actually look at kind of like the ideology that is contained within this plan, it's very problematic, I would say, right? In terms of its kind of goals and what it imagines society is actually going to look like if this plan is implemented. And of course, you know, the thing that is probably pretty obvious with it is that Elon Musk envisions that Tesla is going to be doing many of these things and dominating many of these markets, even though we know that that is not the case that, you know, because Tesla has been trying to do solar panels and home solar panels for ages. And we know that their solar panels are way more expensive than most other companies and that they only install like 10 or 20 or 30 a week, which is very, very few. So they're not actually really like very involved in this kind of marketplace. But anyway, so the vision of the plan beyond let's electrify everything, if you look at kind of the marketing that Tesla puts out, it's very much not just let's electrify everything, but let's electrify everything so that we don't have to change anything else, right? Um, so as we were saying, everyone owns an electric car. And it's going to be parked in the driveway of your suburban home, which is going to have some solar panels on the roof and a little battery next to it. And it's probably going to be a bit, pretty big solar or a, a pretty big suburban home. And the idea there is that we kind of keep the way everything works the same as, as it is right now, because that's the way that Elon Musk in particular likes it. But it also doesn't kind of challenge his more conservative conception of how society should work you know, how it should look, how it should operate. But I think anyone who is more kind of environmentally conscious or concerned about addressing the climate crisis would recognize that suburban form, that reliance on automobiles is very unsustainable and is not going to, you know, if we keep things like that, it's not going to get us to where we need to be if we really want to address the climate crisis. And so his idea is everyone still has their cars, everyone's still in their suburban homes, we don't change very much else. And I would say it also kind of makes it possible for rich people like him to further kind of opt out of society, to separate themselves from everyone else. It's a very beneficial vision for him. And he also, you know, wants to ensure that his private jet can stick around him, his private jet, the private jets of all the other wealthy people. And they'll just find a way to make those work with like synthetic fuels or, you know, battery power or, or whatever, right? It's very much keep everything exactly the same as it is. Don't challenge power structures or the extreme wealth of billionaires or anything like that.
And I would say that the problem there is that it's fundamentally conservative, right? It's a very conservative vision of how we address this problem and also one that's not going to get us to where we need to go. Because if we really want to address the climate crisis, if we really want to address transport emissions and emissions from our communities, what we need is not just to electrify what is going on, but we also need to make massive investments in public transit and cycling infrastructure. We need to think about how we build our communities more fundamentally so that you know they're denser, so that it's easier for people to walk to reach the things that they need to get to, and all these sorts of considerations that Elon Musk has absolutely no interest in engaging with or seeing us realize. He wants you know, the structure of our communities to say the same because that works for people like him, even if it doesn't actually address kind of some of the core problems that we need to address if we're actually going to get anywhere with, you know, addressing emissions and, and kind of reducing the impact of the climate crisis. Yeah, for sure. And so thank you so much. I will give you a chance to do a, a last word at the end of this. But before I do that, how can folks follow your work and and learn more about Tech World Save Us? Yeah, absolutely. I am still on Elon Musk's platform at Paris Marks if you want to follow me over there. I'm also on Mastodon, same thing over, over there. I'm sure you can find me. I have a podcast called Tech Won't Save Us, anywhere you find podcasts. I also write a newsletter called Disconnect if you want more kind of, you know, of these opinions in your inbox. I would say that those are the key things. Amazing. And so, yeah, so it's our tradition to give our our guests the last word on the show. But before I do that, thank you so much. This has been Paris Marks, the host of Tech Won't Save Us. Really appreciate talking all things Musk. And yeah, any last thoughts? Thanks so much. Very excited to chat with you. I would say as a final thought, you know, maybe let's pay a bit more attention to the federal government and, you know, provincial governments as well, Ontario government policy on electric vehicles and how they are pushing really hard to get us to adopt electric vehicles because it's going to mean manufacturing jobs in Southern Ontario and mining jobs across the country, regardless of what that means for indigenous rights um, and, you know, indigenous land. And they're making those investments instead of, you know, really looking at public transit and looking to change the way that we get around. You know, our governments would look at Elon Musk's master plan three and say, electrify everything and keep everyone dependent on cars. That sounds about right. I think we need to challenge that.